it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, March the 8th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Very grateful for your listener listenership every single day between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we're live. If you can't catch us as we air, we have a podcast. It is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. All the information about the program right there. GuyBensonShow.com. I'm political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor in addition to being the host of this program every day. Here's the lineup. Josh Holmes will be here talking politics later this hour. Andy McCarthy former federal prosecutor who has tried some very significant anti-terrorism cases. He will be here talking about this deal with Iran that the Biden administration is apparently on the brink of cementing. It's a disaster, as we've been telling you about. Andy has more details on it and also sort of a a call to arms for congressional Republicans to really start sounding the alarm here in a serious way. All of that with Annie McCarthy coming up in our next hour. In our final hour, Janice Dean. It's been a while since we've had Janice here. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the weather, a bit of a false start on a new spring here in the Northeast, and then we will certainly get her reaction. I've been eager to talk to her about Andrew Cuomo and his comeback speech, which was surreal. At a church on Sunday, she will be here, we'll play audio, and we will get her response. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Stats, 79.2 million. That's the case count cumulatively in the United States, COVID, over the last two years. The real number is much higher than that. That's just the official number. The death toll, Americans who have passed away with or of COVID over the pandemic, 959,113. The Dow is up today, 268 points at this hour, trading at 33,072, trying to make back some of the losses from yesterday. In the green for now, we'll see how things go in the last hour or so of trading. We'll bring you that update in our next hour when we come back on the air just after 4 p.m. Eastern. As we come to the air today, we want to bring you a number of pieces of news involving the war in Ukraine. And the Russian invasion. A few notes, a few pieces of sound for you as well. The Polish government is now preparing to move its MiG 29 fighter jets to a U.S. airbase in Germany to be transferred to the Ukrainians. We talked about how the EU had promised air support in the form of jets to the Ukrainian military. That deal, I guess, had been maybe pledged but not officially struck and then at least partially reneged. The Ukrainians need that help desperately, and now they are apparently going to get it from the Poles, which could be a huge deal. 
there are a number of intelligence sources and the U.S. Pentagon now saying that we believe on the American side that the Russians are ramping up their shelling and may attempt to assault and take Kiev within the next few days, perhaps by the end of the week. And there seems to be some movement in the Northeast. So the Russians, they've definitely absorbed quite a lot of pushback. There are thousands of Russian soldiers who have died. The number is hard to pin down. The range is a few hundred, which is what the Russians are willing to admit to. And then north of 4,000, which is what the U.S. believes. And then other estimates are closer to 10,000. They've taken a lot of casualties. Roughly 2,000 American casualties, a little bit more than that. Over 20 years in Afghanistan, the number of Russians dead in Ukraine already could be more than double that, which is kind of extraordinary. They've had at least 20 jets and helicopters shot down by the Ukrainians. That is a very significant loss rate. But they still have a lot of manpower and firepower, although how well equipped they are, How well-trained some of these conscripts are is unclear. Now, Putin's saying we're not going to do any more conscripts. We're not going to move any of them into this war. That might be a nod to some of the pressure he's starting to feel at home from the population, from parents. But at least the indications seem to be at this hour that the Russians are up to something that they're going to maybe make a hard push in the coming days. And we know how ruthless and vicious they can be how little they care about the lives of their own soldiers and certainly not the enemy, including civilians. So that is something, of course, that is concerning that we'll be watching those planes can't get to Ukraine from Poland fast enough. In another potential blow to the Russians and a boon to the morale of the Ukrainians, it appears that another Russian general has been killed, this time near Kharkiv, which is in the northeast of the country, close to Russia. It's one of the cities that Putin was probably counting on flipping eagerly to Russia. A lot of people speak Russian there. They're ethnically Russian. Those were the types of Ukrainians that the Russians were probably banking on, welcoming them, and that has not happened. And the report is, I'm reading from BBC, that a senior Russian military commander has been killed in a battle, likely by a sniper, in Kharkiv. Russia has not yet commented, but if confirmed, this would be the second officer of that rank to be killed during this war. Two generals, allegedly already. Meanwhile, here on the home front, President Biden spoke at the White House earlier. It took him long enough, but finally, the U.S. policy has changed on importing and paying for Russian oil. Here's part of what he said, cut 24. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in the Congress and, I believe, in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support their Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. Well, I'm glad that that's happening. That is not the White House position that they've been taking now for days. Jen Psaki has been pushing back 
on this against reporters every day. That was not the Biden position, not the White House position. The reporting is, and I saw some of this from Jackie Heinrich, our colleague. She went on a Twitter thread this morning showing that the consensus was so overwhelming in Congress that the White House was going to have this vote happen on Capitol Hill no matter what. Whether Biden and team liked it or not, the ban on the import of Russian oil and energy was inevitable. There was overwhelming support. And the Democratic Congress was going to lead the charge on it with basically every single Republican on board. So Biden was backed into this corner. The politics are obvious. The American people in the polls say not only do they want this to happen, they're willing to take more of a hit at the pump beyond what we already are. And I know that Biden and his team are going to start blaming Ukraine and the war there and Russia for the rise that's coming in gas prices. And there will be some truth to that, but we shouldn't forget fuel prices were increasing dramatically before Russia invaded Ukraine. So that excuse only gets you so far. I know they were worried about that politically, pain at the pump. That's part of the reason why I think they resisted this for as long as they did. But then, look, the train was leaving the station with or without them. The Brits are now doing it as well. Congress was about to take it up. And finally, Biden was basically dragooned into doing the right thing. And he announced it there. I will just add this one point, and maybe we'll talk about this with Josh Holmes a little bit later on. This is good. This is the right step. It's the right thing to do. It's also not enough. Stopping the importation, the import of Russian oil and paying them and and fueling their war machine with our dollars, that is the bare minimum. What we shouldn't do is try to make up that deficit, make up those barrels by going around, which is what we're doing, to the Venezuelans and to the Iranians potentially, to the Saudis and saying, please produce more. Let's come together and create some sort of a deal. We can absolutely produce that amount of oil, make up those barrels right here at home, and then some. We have the capacity for sure in this country. We need an administration that will allow it to happen and will support that happening, which is something that they're still unwilling to do for ideological reasons. So they can get half of this correct The other half really also matters a lot. And in the meantime, don't let them blame what's coming. More sticker shock at gas stations. Don't let them put that all on Putin. I'm all for blaming Putin for a lot of things and partially this, too. But this was a problem that predated this invasion. And you still have a head in the sand policy from the Biden White House to a certain extent. And again, they had to get dragged into this doing half of the right thing. In the meantime, I mentioned the Brits. Over in London earlier, President Zelensky of Ukraine gave a virtual address. He beamed in from Kiev. He's actually been posting social media videos of himself in the presidential offices. I mean, just the the cojones on this guy. The courage saying, I'm here doing my job. He's probably not there for very long. He doesn't want to let the Russians know exactly where he is for too long, but he is sending a signal to his people that he is undaunted, unrelenting, undeterred, still determined to fight and to lead his country while it's being assaulted. It's an amazing thing to watch. 
So he took some time and he addressed the parliament, the House of Commons, in an absolutely packed room, a highly emotional speech earlier. In Cut 41, this refrain might sound somewhat familiar because Zelensky, I would say, obviously deliberately, in a calculated, I think, savvy way, is channeling Winston Churchill in Cut 41. Listen. Question for us now is to be or not to be. Oh no, this is Shakespearean question. For 13 days, this question uh, could have been asked. But now I can give you a definitive answer. It's definitely yes to be. Um, and I would like to remind you the words that the United Kingdom have already heard, uh, which are important again. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. Winston Churchill, when he was addressing the British people during World War II, a famous speech in 1940, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. That was Churchill on combating the Nazis and the echo through history to today and Zelensky in that same chamber, the House of Commons. Paraphrasing and paying homage to Churchill, talking to the members of parliament. I think it was a really smart way to once again cement some of that solidarity. And he concluded to a rousing standing ovation in Cut 40. We are looking for your help, for the help of the civilized countries. We are, we are thankful for this help. And we, and I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Boris. Please increase the pressure of sanctions against this uh, country. And please recognize this country as a terrorist state. And please make sure that our Ukrainian skies are safe. Please make sure that you do what needs to be done and what is stipulated by the greatness of your country. Best of all to Ukraine and uh, to the United Kingdom. Applause in the House of Commons is very rare. During debate, they're not supposed to applaud, which is why they make some of those like jeering and cheering sounds in the background. It was a loud, sustained, stirring standing ovation for Zelensky. The representatives of a free people cheering on the leader of a country being menaced by a global menace, Vladimir Putin. That is where we stand as we come on the air here today. We have a lot to get to over the course of these three hours. I hope you will stay with us. I hope you will stick with us over the course of the program GuyBensonShow.com for anything that you might miss. We will step aside. We will be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I just want to underscore something that I need to say regularly. Just because I am openly rooting for Ukraine and against Russia, my cards are on the table. My heart is on my sleeve on this one. I'm not pretending to be objective because I think that there is an overwhelming right and an overwhelming wrong here. That being said, even though that is the case in my view, I don't want to have an overly rosy assessment of what's really happening on the ground. I think there's a lot of positive things that the Ukrainians should be proud of, but the idea that they are out of the woods, so to speak, I think is wildly premature and could prove wrong. Zelensky, speaking with ABC News yesterday in Cut 9, sort of contextualized things a little bit. Listen. The problem is that for one soldier of Ukraine, we have 10 Russian soldiers. And for one Ukrainian tank, we have 50 Russian tanks. But we are destroying them. And this difference is that the gap is closing. But the question is, how long can we withstand? Many things depend not just on us. We will endure. Militarily, they are outgunned and outmanned. Now, of course, we remember in our war for independence, the revolution, we were also both of those things. And we won because we were a heavily armed, patriotic group of people who wanted to be free, like the Ukrainians are today. But militarily outgunned, outmanned, and the leader of the other side is absolutely dead behind the eyes, ruthless, and is deeply invested in the outcome here and his own ego his own vision of Russia, his own yearning for a return to something approaching a Soviet empire, which has not gone well, and who knows what he would do to try to get this thing back on track. That's the worry. And as I mentioned at the top, this is reported earlier, the U.S. has now observed a new Russian military advance to the northeast of Kiev, complementing the main advance that has been stalled that we've been talking about now for days. It's about 40 miles from the capital city, which is why there might be a new assault on Kyiv upcoming. Our director of national intelligence said today, quote, our analysts assess that Putin is unlikely to be deterred by the setback so far and instead may escalate, essentially doubling down to achieve Ukrainian disarmament, meaning, meaning conquering them. So this is still extremely fluid and very, very dangerous. We have to be clear right about that on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the show, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, it's just on demand. If you can't listen live as we air, which we recommend, we understand that 
Not everyone's schedule can accommodate 3 to 6 Eastern every day, so you've got options. GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, longtime McConnell aide in the U.S. Senate and on the campaign trail, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast, a fine variety program. And Josh, welcome back. Good to have you here. Guy, it's great to be back. I understand you have a birthday yesterday? I did. That is correct, sir. Well, happy belated, my friend. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. I know you guys did a live taping or recording of the podcast in D.C. not too long ago. I was out of town, but you asked me to come and make a cameo. I absolutely would have. If I I had the opportunity, I would have. But I did want to just mention that you guys had one of my favorite people in the world, my bestie, Mary Catherine Hamm, on the program recently. Uh, She was a hit. Unex- um, I would say I would say totally expectedly, not unexpectedly. Yeah, no, totally expectedly. We had her in studio. I mean, you know, she's just a breath of fresh air of all times. But, you know, it's, you know, what's really nice. It's really nice to have her on a program where she can actually, you know, stretch out and have her conservative credentials. She doesn't have to play defense on CNN. You know, I mean, she's got she's great. <laughs> yeah, no, she was she was feeling it. And it was that was a, a fun episode to listen to. Josh, I want to start with the president today announcing finally that we're going to stop paying U.S. dollars for Russian oil and importing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day. It seems like, based on all the reporting, that Congress was going to do this anyway. I mean, yeah. there was such an overwhelming demand from the American people, from Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill, that the White House that had been sort of keeping this idea at arm's length for a while, they finally said, OK, enough. We're not going to be able to stop it. So they've gotten on board. I mean, I guess, you know, I'll give him I'll give him one clap for doing it finally. But this doesn't seem really like an example of presidential leadership. This is presidential forced into followership. Oh, yeah. Now, this is right back to the Obama doctrine of leading from behind. Right. I mean, this is I don't know if you saw Jackie Heinrich this morning at Fox had a great thread on Twitter where she explained what happened. Basically, they were going to. Yeah. Yeah. Democrats and Republicans were were getting together to put this into into action and actually pass it into law, which Biden intervened and tried to stop. And then they figured out they couldn't. So, you know, again, he he makes the announcement. But but look, I, I think a bigger issue at hand here is the fact that this administration has put us in this vulnerable situation to begin with, right? I mean, when you're limiting domestic oil production, they've they've made absolutely no secret of their agenda, whether it's the Keystone Pipeline on day one, or whether it's Jennifer Granholm openly talking about their their willingness to sort of limit domestic production uh, across the board. This is their plan, right? And they've made us more dependent on world actors that are less than tr- trustworthy, in the case of, of Russia, actively hostile. And so, look, they, they've put us in this position, and now I think they, they're trying to take credit for, for for doing what was so obvious from the beginning. And I mean, it's just absolute maddening, but it is totally par for the course on almost everything that they have encountered since the beginning well, of and this it's, administration. It's only half of the equation, too, because stopping this lunacy of us paying for Russian oil every day, that's good and fine and necessary. It's like the least that could be done. But the ramping up of domestic production to make up for and then some, that oil I think is like a no-brainer, but they're not really ideologically on board for that, although they kind of want to pretend that they are 
and scold anyone for suggesting otherwise. I mean, they go back yeah. and forth with Jackie and with Peter Ducey at the White House every day, it seems, where they're like, well, just, you know, the oil companies have all these permits that have been granted and they're just not using them. I mean, I- I'm sorry. It just it feels like real time gaslighting. You're telling me that the American energy industry has all these opportunities to drill and produce oil and the Biden people are telling them, go do it. But they're just for some reason choosing not to. I mean, who believes that? No, I mean, you can't possibly believe them. Right. But they've actually made no secret. Like I said, guy, they've made actually no secret at all that their long term goal here is to try to wean America off fossil fuels. Meanwhile, having an entire reliance upon that. Right. I mean, you look back at the BBB bill and what they were trying to do was incentivize more production of electric cars that have batteries and chips that are made in China. Right. I mean, there is no domestic energy production at all that they are okay with. And, and what I can't figure out for the life of me is they do all of this in the name of the environment, but then become reliant upon countries that have little or no regard to the environment at all, right? I mean, what right. do you think? Ru- think Russia cares about uh, the Paris Treaty? You know, is, is China right, Saudi really- <laughs> right. or, you know, or the, the Venezuelans or potentially now Iran? It's like we're going around – asking all these other actors to go pump more oil and and sell it to us because now we're going to have hundreds of thousands fewer barrels coming in from Russia as of, I I guess, you know, any moment here, which is, again, welcome. But I'm trying to figure out the logic. And we talked about this yesterday with Katie Pavlich. It's like, oh, well, we're going to get those barrels and that oil pumped out of the ground from other countries, in some cases hostile countries that have very different worldviews and values than we do, because we're not really going to green light it here because they don't believe in green lighting it here, even though they're trying to tell us that they do believe in green lighting it here, even though they haven't done it in a lot of key respects. It's just totally muddled. Totally, completely ridiculous. I can't imagine in a president, and I don't care what partisanship you affiliate with, I can't imagine a president believing that it is good policy for the United States of America to be dependent upon countries like Russia, Venezuela, Iran, Saudi Arabia, period. I don't care if you're talking about energy, national security, anything. Why Mm -hmm. in the world would you want that? And yet time and time again, I mean, look, we're two years away from being entirely energy independent under the Trump administration. And here we are now acting like this is some huge show of faith that we've banned Russian oil imports. Well, the real question is, why is it that we had reliance upon Russia in the first place? I mean, that's an obvious question. And some of our correspondents here at Fox have been pressing the White House on that. And their argument basically is, yes, we believe in energy independence, but it needs to be green energy independence. That's what will really lower costs. I mean, even if that happens, we're a long way off. And then anything that's discussed, like, you know, the the Arctic drilling or the Keystone Pipeline, they tell us, well, those aren't really relevant. And that wouldn't really help right now. And I made this point last night on special report on the panel. This is exactly what we heard for eight years under Obama and Biden. He ran for president back then saying that his energy policy would make energy prices necessarily skyrocket. That was his phrase at the time. And he said it proudly. That was the goal was to make prices at home skyrocket, to shove people into green energy and move the planet in that direction. And doing anything like drilling or building these pipelines, it wasn't an immediate fix to immediate pain, and therefore they sort of treated it as unserious. If we had done some of those things then, 
we would not have the problems that we have now. Now they're making the same excuse. Oh, well, that can't be done immediately. Therefore, it's not serious, although they talk about moving to green energy like that will lower costs. I mean, that's a long way off if it happens in the future. And I feel, as I said last night, if we get into another pressure point scenario around the world with oil and the price of oil in the coming years, which is probably inevitable, we will look back at this moment and they'll make the same excuses then that they were making now what they were making 10 years ago. I mean, it just sort of keeps going with these people. It totally keeps going. But, you know, the, the crazy thing is that their reliance on, on the rest of the world in terms of energy production isn't limited to fossil fuel. I mean, as I mentioned, they incentivize all of these electric cars. In fact, they made it into the State of the Union two or three times talking about domestic production of electric cars. Well, you know, in order to do that, you need batteries that rely on rare earth minerals. Okay, so where do we get those? In that same BBB bill where they're trying to incentivize electric car manufacturing, they actually banned rare earth mineral mining in Nevada and other places domestically, right? So they're basically saying no matter if you drive a car on gas or a car that uses electricity, we're going to have to rely on a hostile foreign power one way or another to get around this country. I mean, it's just mind-boggling that they've come to these conclusions. Meanwhile, what they're also doing, I saw this, uh, one of the journos, in this case it was a New York Times journo, tweeted, this is noteworthy. As Biden cuts off Russian oil, McCarthy, meaning Kevin McCarthy's spokesman, is attacking him on Twitter for high oil prices, etc. This is why many Democrats feared a trap. And I saw one of Senator McConnell's aides said, these people are going to work so hard to whitewash away the huge spike in energy prices and energy costs that predated the crisis in Europe. They think you're just going to forget that this was already a major national story before two weeks ago. I mean, that kind of does sum it up, right? I mean, at the White House, they're going to blame these prices on Putin. Some of the increase will be on him, and that's fine. And the American people, based on polls, are willing to absorb some of it. But if they're going to try to further gaslight us and pretend like, oh, there wasn't some big painful crisis on this front before this started, just on Biden's watch, I mean, they can try. Sounds like they'll have some willing accomplices in the news media. But the American people have been, you know, awake and sentient for the last year plus. That's their problem. Well, and feeling the pain very directly, right? I mean, I I remember there was a a piece in the New York Times or Washington Post about 10 days ago. I think it was like day two or three of the conflict in in Ukraine. And the piece was Americans already starting to feel the pinch of the conflict in Ukraine uh, in in terms of inflation. And I'm like, yes, they're blaming inflation on Ukraine. I mean, are you kidding me? We had (laughs) 7.7% inflation last year, right? How in the world are you... I mean, Putin would need a time machine to go back and change that. So, as I say, they're going to try. They're going to put their best spin on it. We know that the the journos and the Dems uh, collude all the time to try this stuff. I just I don't think it's going to work for them. And I think that they have a very low opinion of the American people and their collective intelligence, which is why they try this sort of thing. Part of it's also out of you know, necessity. What else do they have? Right. They they have no choice but to try to spin because the reality on so many fronts has been so bad and so unpopular. Josh, I want to ask you a separate question about a separate topic. We played some of the interview 
or I at least I watched some of the interview last night with Bill Barr, the former attorney general, with Brett Bayer on special report. He's going to have the second half of that interview tonight. We'll get to some of the sound bites later in today's show. We mentioned it yesterday. We've got Barr on this show uh, here in studio, actually, coming up next week. I'm sort of struck by, and I, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I know you're a longtime McConnell guy. You love cocaine, Mitch. I sort of view Barr and McConnell similarly in the sense that we operate in a political season where there's a lot of very unserious, stupid people or people pandering with stupidity and who aren't adults in the room and sort of stampede from one thing to another based on polling or based on whatever you might see, but they're not really grounded in much. And that's not a partisan phenomenon. It does happen on both sides. Bill Barr as attorney general struck me as the Mitch McConnell of attorneys general or the Mitch McConnell of the Trump cabinet, which is not to take anything away from other serious people in the cabinet like Pompeo and others. But he was a serious person in a serious time. He's got the new book out that he's now doing interviews about and selling. I just feel like the attacks that are coming in from Barr from the left and from the Trump haters are predictable and really just deranged in a lot of cases. But Trump himself also put out this multi-page letter yelling and screaming about how awful Bill Barr was. He's a left-wing Democrat and all this stuff. I mean, I just feel like I appreciate people like McConnell and Barr who may not always go with like the flow or the the winds of the you know prevailing winds of the day, but they actually are effective and get the job done. And it just it annoys me when people on our side, quote unquote, go after them the way that they do. Yeah. Well, look, he's an extremely serious person. I think this country is extremely lucky to have him in the position that he was in uh, as long as he was there. I mean, what people are forgetting in the near term is that Bill Barr was the the person who stood against all of the Russia hoax nonsense when the prevailing conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. was that, you know, Trump was dead to rights and conclusion and collusion was happening. And, you know, all this nonsense with the basically every investigation for three and a half years. Barr was the one person in America who was saying that's just absolutely not true. There's no evidence of it. And furthermore, we're going to appoint Durham to get to the bottom of it. If had he and not they hated done that, him. They hated him for all of that. They also remember when they went crazy, Josh, when he accurately summarized the bottom line takeaways from the Mueller report. Yeah. They absolutely lost their ever loving minds because he did that. And yeah. it's like, you know, I'm glad that he did it. It was very weird, the tantrum that they had. But a lot of that goodwill for him doing the right stuff, like because he wouldn't say, oh, yes, there's massive voter fraud and Trump didn't really lose the election because he wouldn't go with that. Then he becomes what persona non grata overnight. I think that's absurd. Yeah, no, I mean, (laughs) yeah, look, he's a serious person. And like you said, there's a lot of unserious people that are involved in the world of partisan politics today that want conclusions that don't have facts that merit them. Right. And I think that's what's driven Bill Barr since the beginning of his career, whether it's popular with your party or whether it's unpopular with your party. I've found, you know, most of these interviews that he's been doing, you know, good questions. And and I think he's answering them as forthright as he he possibly can. The one thing that's just a breath of fresh air about him is just how direct he is. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't care. No, the best part is he doesn't care what the chatterers have to say about him. And it's it's so clear. He's like, you know what? I've had a very successful life and career. I'm confident what I've done. 
and you people can say whatever you want. Uh, read my book. Thank you. Goodbye. That's sort of that's the, the vibe I get from Bill Barr, and I'm about it. Josh, we got to leave it there for now. Josh Holmes of Cavalry LLC, founding partner. His podcast with Smug and Company is Ruthless. I recommend it. Josh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Okay, let's face it. The world is paying attention because this is happening in Europe. If this was happening anywhere else, would we see the same outpouring of support and compassion? But we don't need to ask ourselves if the international response would be the same if Russia unleashed their horror on a country that wasn't white and largely Christian. Because Russia has already done it in Syria. This is a teachable moment for us in the media. We aren't afraid to call out our own industry. There is a lot of soul searching that we need to do in Western media about why some wars and lives seem to matter more than others. Oh, yawn. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was Joy Reid on MSNBC. And I'm not going to pick just on her. Too easy. But this is one of the woke lines that we're hearing. Oh, the world is so interested in the invasion of Ukraine. A sovereign country being attacked by Russia and invaded and taken over because it's a white Christian country. And that's why. So basically, this is a racist news media. It's just, you know, white people in trouble. So that's why the media cares. I know that Joy is older than I am, so she has to remember, as I do, just to pick one example, the Gulf War, 1990, 1991. What happened there? A larger neighbor country invaded a sovereign country, Kuwait, and the U.S. led a worldwide coalition marshaled the forces of the world to drive Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. The United States sacrificed 1,143 lives in that fight, in that battle. Is Kuwait a white Christian nation, Joy? I don't think so. Maybe your analysis and your racial fixation is a little bit off. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com, all the ways to listen live there, including... Across our great affiliates all around the country. You can also get our podcast for free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. As we get going here, Fox News Alert. When we came on the air about an hour ago, the Dow was in the green and was gaining some of the ground lost yesterday, and that fell apart in the final hour of trading. The Dow ends down today, 184 points, so a pretty significant drop over the last 50 minutes or so, a big sell-off. Dow closing today at 32,632. By the way, just very quickly, at the end of the last hour, I was talking about a soundbite that we played. An MSNBC host, Joy Reid, was suggesting that the world is fixated on Ukraine because the Ukrainians are white. And Christian, and that's why. And I made the counterpoint that, just to give one example, the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein in the early 90s, where the whole world got together to wage war against Hussein and push the Iraqis back out of Kuwait, 
notably not a white or Christian country, just to sort of put that in perspective and to push back on what has been a very popular and increasingly popular sort of woke race-obsessed talking point about the war in Ukraine, because, of course, everything always has to be about race to some people, even when there are obvious counterexamples from living history to mention, uh, as I did in the last segment of the final, or I should say the final segment of the last hour, I did misspeak in that segment. I said that over a thousand Americans died during that invasion, the Gulf War, during our Uh, war to liberate Kuwait. The actual number of U.S. in-theater deaths in that conflict was 298, 143 killed in action. The number that I quoted was coalition troops wounded total. So my point very much still stands. I had read the casualty list wrong. I wanted to correct the record on the air because I want you to trust what I say, and I try to be as accurate as I can be every single day. And that was an easy one where I could quickly fact check myself. And I wanted to bring that to you before we moved on. But now we will move on because I want to discuss another subject. And I know that this is something that I banged on for a long time on this show, month after month, for more than a year. And I'm actually proud that we did. I am proud that we focused on this show on the well-being of students and the importance of school and in-person instruction when schools were closed in a lot of the country for a year, based not on science, based on political science, based on anti-Trumpism, right? Trump said we should open the schools. He was right. People who hated him said, well, now we can't open the schools. So they didn't. And for more than a year, millions of kids in this country were unable to go into a classroom and learn from teachers, which was massively detrimental to their academic progress, to their education, to their development as people. It was a catastrophic error made by adults, bureaucrats, politicians, union bosses, overwhelmingly in places around this country where that coalition wields the power. And that was a power play, and the kids were in the crossfire, and they were harmed badly. Then finally, while they were in school just fine around the world, it apparently didn't matter to a lot of these people, they were in school just fine in private schools in a lot of these exact same cities and states. didn't seem to matter. The data, the outcomes seemed to, like kind of irrelevant. They had more important things going on, political fights to win, tribalism to defend. They looked at Florida and other places like that and said, oh, you know, we don't care. Actually, they're doing it wrong. We're doing it right. We don't care what the actual science says. We have capital S science on our side. Then eventually they relented months late after so much harm was done with a mountain of evidence building and building and building about how much harm was being inflicted needlessly on these kids. And then what did they do? They insisted, and some of them are still insisting to this day, although it's finally mostly over. Their back has been broken on this. But for a very long time, they insisted and required, almost as a matter of religious dogma, that every kid in school wear a mask over his or her face, nose and mouth, all day long, 
eight hours a day while they were in school. And we talked here on this show till we were blue in the face. And maybe some of you were tired of hearing about it from me, but to me, it mattered a lot because it wasn't just neutral. That'd be one thing. A useless policy that was neutral. It was actually harmful based on what we were learning, what we were reading, studies from around the globe, doctors we had on this show. And we were practically begging, imploring some of these adults to just put the politics on hold for a second and look at what was happening in Europe and the UK and Florida and other states where kids were in school year round with their normal breaks and everything, largely unmasked and things were fine because schools were not super spreaders. Masks and mask mandates were not helping mitigate the spread of COVID and kids right? Children 18 and under are some of the least adversely affected on planet Earth by COVID. Healthy kids are effectively vaccinated just by virtue of their age. Thank God. And we've known this for so long. And when we would bring facts to bear, And we would talk about relative risks and risk assessment and having your kid in the car being a much greater risk to their life, still infinitesimally small, but still greater than dying of COVID. That was callous of us to point out, apparently. To point out that a lot more kids drown in any given year than died of COVID in the middle of this huge raging pandemic. That was just unseemly, evidently, for us to Bring that fact to people's attention because, well, we just don't care about those gut-wrenching exceptions. Of course we care about gut-wrenching exceptions. Gut-wrenching exceptions are not a smart or rational basis for public policy. We can hold both of those thoughts, logical policy and compassion. They are not mutually exclusive, but you can't conflate one with the other because you'll do a lot more harm, which is exactly what they did. So I guess you might frame this segment as another told you so moment. But I want to keep telling you so, really telling them so, you all know, telling them so, so that they never try this again. With COVID and the mass mandates for children in schools. So let's start with this. And I saw a few people sharing this study including our colleague, Dr. Nicole Sapphire. So this is a study out of Spain. Hundreds of thousands of kids involved in this study. Let me just quote. Face mask mandates in schools not associated with lower COVID incidence or transmission. I'm going to read that again. Face of face mask mandates in schools not associated with lower COVID incidence or transmission, suggesting, the quote goes on, that this intervention is not effective. And they talked about other factors that were more relevant in the study. Dr. Sapphire says this, new study shows that mask mandates in schools were not associated with lower COVID transmission. Also of note... The lowest cases, the lowest hospitalizations, and the lowest deaths were those aged 1 to 4. 
And yet Americans are still masking the lowest risk populations with data arguing against it. And we've known that young kids, especially the youngest kids, are least at risk for severe outcomes from COVID. And yet in New York City, for example, right now, the mask mandate's gone, but not for five and under. Right? If you're in kindergarten or preschool, you still have to wear a mask. It is insanity. It is the opposite of what we have known based on the data for a long time. And here's yet another significant data point. A massive study in Spain. Mask mandates in schools did not stop transmission of the virus or incidents of the virus in schools. That should be dog bites man. That type of story. Unsurprising. Confirming what we all already knew, except a lot of people didn't want to know it or refused to know it, refused to take that knowledge and put it into practice. And again, common sense based on everything that we've read, but the youngest kids are the safest from severe outcomes from COVID. One to four years old, lowest incidents, lowest hospitalizations, lowest deaths, and yet we are still insisting in on an airplane. Your three-year-old must wear a mask. In New York City, your kindergartner or your you know, preschooler must wear a mask. Even while older kids who are also at very low risk don't have to wear masks. And the mask mandates, and we've talked about them, I mean, we've given examples out of Colorado. I mean, the examples, it takes too long to list all of the studies that disprove this absurd conventional wisdom that so many elites, especially sort of pro-science elites and teachers unions and all of that, that they embraced month after month after month. And they would cite occasionally studies that would purport to show the opposite, and then they would get debunked as totally lousy, deeply flawed studies that didn't actually prove what their highlighters, the people pointing to them, claimed they proved. And they were debunked in places like New York Magazine and The Atlantic, not exactly right-wing precincts, because that's how shoddy the pro school mask mandate data was, whereas the anti was overwhelming. But they said, oh, no, the science and the safety, the two capital S's, they just matter too much. So put that four year old in a mask. Eric Adams is the mayor of New York City. He was asked about this. I mean, they're making some progress in New York slowly but surely, but they're sticking with this craziness for the youngest kids. Why? Here's what he said in Cut 37. If you were talking to a four-year-old and trying to explain why they have to keep their mask on but their, their six-year-old brother doesn't, what, what is your, your explanation to that four-year-old? I'm so happy you said that because when I was in Rockaway in the St. Pat's Day Parade, I did just that. A group of parents brought me and talked to their children and explained uh, to them. I told them, you're going to be taking off your mask like your big brothers and sisters are doing now. You know, when when you have big brothers and sisters, sometimes they do things first to make sure it's safe for you. And those children, they understand it because they trust their parents and they trust their leadership. They're not tainted like adults. (laughs) You know, they still 
still feel uh, that we have to make the right decisions for them. And I'm with the parents. I want those masks off. I said it in January, but I have to do it right to make sure our city uh, protects its children and don't close down the city again. They're not going to close down the city again because a bunch of two-year-olds weren't wearing their masks or three-year-olds or four-year-olds. That's not about keeping anyone safe. There's no science to back it up. He says what's so great about these little kids is they, they still trust. They still trust us. They might be the only ones left who trust the public health establishment still pushing nonsense like this. And he's still citing it like safety. We have to make sure that it's safe. Your seven-year-old brother is test driving the mask-free thing that's been test driven around the world for a year and a half. We know that it's safe. We know that the forced masking of preschool kids is nuts and unscientific. And the new Spanish study is just the latest example of that. And, I mean, I don't strongly detest the new mayor of New York City compared to the last one, certainly. But that is just a terrible answer. Maybe plausible if he had said it a year and a half ago or something. Not anymore. Last point on this. I said earlier, if it were simply neutral, masking kids in schools, force them to wear masks, if it were neutral, not helpful, but not harmful, I still think we should have gotten rid of the masks. Because when in doubt, let's not put that burden on the kids. But we do know of harms. There's been a lot of discussion about some of those harms, especially for kids with special needs. Now you look at what's happened over the last two years with school closures and the forced masking and all of this insanity. New York Times story today. The kindergarten crisis of last year, when millions of five year olds spent months outside of classrooms, has become this year's reading emergency. And by the way, I'm absolutely convinced this is both school closures and school masking because of other pieces that we've read from and doctors who have attested to these things. As the pandemic enters its third year, writes the New York Times, a cluster of new studies, multiple studies, now show that about a third of children in the youngest grades are missing reading benchmarks, up significantly from before the pandemic. In Virginia, one study found that early reading skills were at a 20-year low this fall, which researchers described as alarming. In the Boston region, 60% of students at some high-poverty schools have been identified as a high risk for reading problems. 60%. Children in every demographic has been, uh, have been affected, but black and Hispanic children, as well as those from low-income families and those with disabilities, which is where masks come in as well, and those who are not fluent in English, have fallen furthest behind. So the people who profess deep caring about equity and that sort of thing have been harming these groups of children the worst by not following the science while pretending to worship capital S science. This is the tip of the iceberg of the harms. And some of us still haven't learned the lesson, which is why we will keep talking about it here on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Remember that guy down in Florida who would dress up like the Grim Reaper and go to the beach and shame people and bully them for going outside in the sun at the start of COVID? 
And he did this for a while, even after there was indications and actual data and science coming out that being outdoors is like the safest place you can be. But Ron DeSantis opened the beaches. Oh, shame. People are going to die. So the beaches was, you know, if you're going to go to the beach, it's like probably the best place you can be. This guy dressed up as the Grim Reaper and went around and shamed them on camera. Well, now he's running for attorney general of Florida. He wants to stand up to the bullying, he says, of Ron DeSantis. This guy bullied people based on non-science in a death costume. By the way, he went to BLM protests over that same summer because I guess the science changed for that. Then back to the death costume and back to the beaches to bully and shame people. He wants to be attorney general down there. (laughs) Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, the website here at the program. The podcast is on demand. It is free every single day as soon as the show ends at around 6 p.m. Eastern time. But if you want to tune in live, which we, of course, always suggest, 3 to 6 Eastern, everything right there, GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where he prosecuted several very high-profile terrorism cases. He's also written multiple best-selling books, most recently Ball of Collusion. He's on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, it's always good to have you here. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Guy. Great to be with you. We have been discussing this issue on this show now for days, and you've now been writing about it at National Review and elsewhere, and I really wanted to make sure that we continued to hit on this because I think it's extremely important, and I'm worried that given the understandable huge distractions all around the world, this story might be getting short shrift here at home, but it's extremely important. And we're talking, of course, about Iran, the deal that might be taking shape or perhaps has taken shape between the United States, the Biden administration and the Iranian regime negotiated by the Russians. And it sounds like the Chinese were in on it as well. We played the sound yesterday of the Russian lead negotiator boasting basically about what a great deal this was for Iran, how they got so much more than they were expecting or anyone thought they would have gotten, that the Chinese were indispensable partners in this negotiation. I mean, all of this stuff is honestly chilling when you've got China and Russia and Iran high-fiving based on something that they have done ostensibly on behalf of the Biden administration when it comes to a nuclear Iran. It's just it's mind-blowing to me. If you can just lay out, let's just start here. What has emerged, because a lot of this is shrouded in secrecy, the enemies of the United States know what's in the deal. The Congress of the United States does not. But there have been leaks. Some things have come out. The administration is saying, oh, this is just a resumption of the Obama deal. We don't really have to talk about it. We don't really have to have a vote in Congress. It's just the same old deal. We're just getting back into it. That is not true. What are you learning, Andy? Well, Guy, I think to understand what a uh, what an atrocious deal is taking shape now, we have to understand what the original Iran nuclear deal under the Obama-Biden administration was and why it was objectionable and why this one is worse. I would say the 2015 deal was objectionable not only because it didn't prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons, even by its own terms, All it did was delay Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons and put them on like an 8- to 13-year 
track toward that end. But not only did it do that, it ignored Iran's status as the leading global state sponsor of terrorism and specifically anti-American terrorism, of which there's been no shortage uh, out of Iran over the last 40 years. It ignored other stuff like the mayhem that they make in the region, the, their ballistic missiles program, and the like. So th the real objectionable thing about the first deal was that it left all this other stuff out as, you, as if you could discuss nuclear weapons with a terrorist state without acknowledging that it's a terrorist state. If it's possible, and by the way, just, and just to underscore the first point that you made, despite the assertions that get made constantly about the Obama deal 2015, by the way, 60 percent of Congress was against that deal, including a lot of Democrats, 60 percent against. We'll get to that actually in a second. But contra the Obama administration talking point, it did not prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons it at best delayed Iran from getting nuclear weapons a little bit, but sort of created a path forward where they had an effectively Western-blessed nuclear program, and then they would emerge from this deal when the restrictions expired and sunsetted as a threshold nuclear state with the imprimatur, really, of the U.S. government on that new status quo that they were allowed to build toward over the course of the deal, to me, that was the ultimate fatal flaw of the deal, that it wasn't this concession there or that concession there. It was it wouldn't do the thing, which is prevent a nuclear Iran. It would indeed allow a nuclear Iran. I just want to underline that because I think it's really important. But that's the 2015 deal. You're saying – what we're learning now is the new Biden era deal appears to be distinct, different and worse. Yes. Uh, it, it, and to cut to the chase, what makes it really worse is that besides bearing all of the downsides of the original deal and the fact of the unreality of the original deal in the present context, because remember now, President Trump took us out of this deal in 2018, after which Iran flouted its conditions. So the, the conditions that obtained in 2015 are no longer in place. You can't really go back to it uh, for a variety of reasons. But the, the main flaw in the last deal was ignoring things like terrorism. In this deal, in order to try to grovel to get the Iranians to come to the table, and mind you, Guy, they won't even speak to us face-to-face. -face. As you pointed right. out at the beginning of our discussion, we've had this intermediary, Russia, doing the heavy lifting on the negotiations. Russia. But Russia. Russia, right. And rather than uh, just ignore things like terrorism and ballistic missiles, to get Iran to sign on here, what Biden is doing is giving them sanctions relief for their terrorist activity, their ballistic missiles activity, their aggression in the region, all sanctions that were imposed by the United States independent of the nuclear program and independent of the 2015 deal. And indeed, some of the sanctions were imposed after the 2015 deal uh, and relate to things like terrorism. So it was one thing to ignore the terrorism. Now we're forgiving the terrorism in we're order rewarding to get it. them to sign on to a deal. Right. To get them to sign on to a deal at the end of which they get a weapon. So, I mean, that's where we're at.
Wait, hang on. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly because it sounds too bad to be true, right? We have a deal with the Iranians, apparently, struck by the Biden administration through their intermediaries, through their conduits, the Russians, and the Russians are saying with Chinese help, that would bring back some of the worst elements of the Obama deal, weaker and shorter, like the time horizons are now even shorter. The Iranians reportedly have given up almost nothing, virtually zero concessions at all on their end. And rather than ignoring the terrible bad behavior, the regional terrorism and meddling, the illegal weapons programs of non-nuclear nature, all of that stuff was ignored badly during the Obama years. We've shifted from ignoring it to rewarding it. And if this all goes through as planned, billions of dollars flow to the Iranians, billions of dollars go to terrorist organizations that the Iranians prop up and banks that they use to procure illegal weapons and killers with American blood on their hands. They come off of lists and they come off of sanction lists. And after all of that, what we get out of it is a nuclear threshold Iran very soon where they can then effectively flip a switch and have nuclear weapons in a matter of years. Does that all sound about right? That does sound right, Guy. And let me just underscore the last thing that you said, because I think enough attention has not been paid to this. When you talk about a flip of the switch sort of capacity, one of the real, I thought, outrageous things about the first deal is that it basically under the guise of civilian nuclear experimentation and and civilian use nuclear development, it basically not only gave them an industrial strength nuclear program, but it obliged us to help them develop it and to and to protect it. Uh, and so that has all gone on. So it's not just a, a question of, you know, the restrictions are coming off. While this deal is in place, we're making them better and more efficient at the development. We've helped them advance. We've helped them advance the ball. Right. And when you get to the point of uh, how high the grade of their enrichment is, they've been enriching to 60 percent. We're getting close to saying that's the switch of the flip of a switch to a nuclear weapons program. Andy, the question that is just screaming in my head, and I'd imagine a lot of our listeners are wondering the same thing. Everything you that you have just described, again, none of it's exactly confirmed because they're hiding it from America. They're hiding it from Congress. The Russians know. Beijing knows. Tehran knows. The handful of Biden officials who have have not quit because three of them quit in protest because the concessions were so outrageous. They walked away saying we can't be a part of this anymore. But the Biden team members who are still there, they know the rest of it is just sort of rumor and stuff that is kind of leaked out. But let's just say the the picture that you're painting is basically accurate. The question then is, why? Why on earth would any American administration – I disagree with Biden on almost everything. But nevertheless, I, I'm trying to understand why would any American president be willing to outsource our negotiations to some of our worst enemies to help – one of the worst actors in the world get closer to nuclear weapons while giving them billions of dollars for their illegal weapons and their terrorism. Why? Yeah, Guy, 
you know, the, that question now presses obviously uh, even more than it did before, but it was a very strong pressing question back in 2015 as well. And I think this is very hard for people to understand. It's hard for me to explain because I, I think it's so preposterous. But to just give it its due, philosophically speaking, the Obama-Biden administration wanted to reorient the United States in its posture toward the Middle East. And their theory was that it served our interests and it would be more stable to develop a relationship with Iran and to put distance between the United States and Israel, as well as our uh, traditional Arab Muslim allies. And that was their vision of what the region would look like if it was more stable and more uh, along the lines of how Obama saw yeah, our regional which interests. Obviously- didn't work, and then there was a huge realignment and a solidification of the Israeli-Arab alliance, for example. The world changed dramatically during the Trump administration on exactly this front. And what, Biden's just back to the same flawed template and tripling down on it here? Yeah, I think the additional factor now is, and this is political more than anything else, Guy, and we see the same thing at the border. The the default position of the Biden administration appears to be that if there's something that Obama did that Trump reversed, Biden must reverse it back to the way Obama had it. And we've seen this on a variety of fronts, and this is just the latest and, and to my mind, most detrimental. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's so it's in the border. Yeah, but, it's petty. It's stupid. And in this case, it's incredibly dangerous. And, Andy, we only have about three or four minutes left, so I really want to get to this part of the conversation. What can be done? Because I've had senators and members of Congress on this show over the last two weeks. I've asked them about it. They have teed off on the administration. I know Kevin McCarthy and one of the chairmen on the Republican side, or ranking members, rather, soon to be probably chairman, uh, sending a letter to the White House saying this has to come before Congress for a vote as a treaty. This must happen. Senator McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, he gave a speech yesterday on the House floor saying there have to be votes on this. You seem to think that the opposition has been somewhat muted. It could be just so much is happening in the world that people are letting this slip through. I, that, that cannot be allowed to happen. Uh, there's some history that might be relevant here as to why Republicans feel like they don't have uh, much power, uh, that their hands are a little bit tied here. But I feel like, I mean— the worry, the concern seems to be if Biden gives this the thumbs up and the, the go ahead, billions of dollars can start flowing to some of the worst actors on the planet before Congress even sees the thing. And that is incomprehensible to me. Yeah, well, Guy, you know, I'm going to tell you something that I, I think that uh, I said to you back when we were discussing the first Iran deal, and it wasn't politically uh, savvy or, or very practical to say this at the time, but I, we're in a different world now. But I, I, by then, I had written a book about uh, impeachment in 2014. And what I pointed out to people was, as far as the framers were concerned, it was an impeachable offense if an American chief executive made a deal with a foreign power to the detriment of American national security. That would have been like at the top of the list of the things that the framers thought a president should be impeached for. And I think, you know, if you, if you want to get down to brass tacks, the way, the way this can be stopped is by impeaching the president, or at least a credible threat to impeach the president, because I don't see 
any other way that this gets stopped. The way that but there's Obama no chance of that. The, the Democrats control Congress, right? This is apparently potentially days away. They're not going anywhere close to impeachment on the on this thing. I mean, they. I'm well, hoping that there's enough. Dem- you, you're saying retroactively. I'm saying, is there any way to stop this now? Can can Democrats? Because apparently, there's Democrats in Congress very worried about this. Is there a method for them to force a vote where Congress has a say on this? I, Before I it happens. So. I mean, the legal way that they structured this the last time, and it'll be the same this time, is that Congress has given the president a lot of authority to waive sanctions. He can't, he can't of his own accord repeal them, but he can waive them. And if he waives them, they're going to instantly get $90 billion in foreign reserves that have been frozen. And once they get going again, they'll get 50 to $55 billion a year more just from oil sales. And that's all on the books now. And the last time they did have this Iran Agreement Review Act that uh, Bob Corker pushed, which I thought was just a terrible piece of legislation, because what it did was reverse the Constitution's presumption against treaties. So what they did when they passed this was basically say it requires two-thirds of Congress to disapprove a deal before it, it, it could be killed. Whereas the impeachment clause says you have to bring it – I'm not the impeachment – I'm sorry, the, the uh, treaty clause. Treaty clause. Says you have to bring it to the Senate, and they need a supermajority to get it approved. Biden is not going to bring this to the Senate as a treaty, and the votes are not going to be there. Even if, even if they – right now the administration is taking the position that the Review Act doesn't apply because preposterously they're saying all they're doing is reviving a deal that Congress already approved. As we discussed, it's actually a brand-new deal. Yeah, that's just not true. And even if it did come before Congress, they wouldn't have the 67 votes to disapprove of it. It still wouldn't be a treaty, just like the last time, which is why Trump was able to get us out of it unilaterally. But I mean, this is such a terrible way to conduct foreign policy, especially given what would happen here, given what the substance of the policy is. I mean, the, the, this, um, kind of the procedural stuff here is disgusting, the way that it's being discussed and negotiated is disgusting through the Russians. The substance is the very worst part of it. And we're going to keep talking about it as much as we can. Andy's written about it a lot at National Review online and elsewhere. We've got to stop there, Andy. I'm up on a hard break, but we appreciate your insight on this. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Guy. Andy McCarthy on The Guy Benson Show back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Let's listen to Cut 44. Gonna go up. <laughs> Can't do much right now. Russia's responsible. Biden was asked about rising gas prices. Can't do much now. Russia's responsible. Partially, but this predates the crisis. That is partisan spin. Janice Dean coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour on this Tuesday edition of the Guy Benson Show. It's our happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is just terrific. 
I keep hearing from you guys who are trying it each and every day. TheLongDrink.com is their website. It's a citrus refreshing soda, great effervescence, ice cold with a premium liquor kick. If you haven't tried it yet, TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding dramatically due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Here at the radio show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our Twitter and our Instagram handle is at GuyBensonShow. You can follow us there. If you can't catch the show between 3 and 6 Eastern, there's a podcast every day on demand. It's free. GuyBensonShow.com for all of that. It's right there. As we begin our last hour and embark upon, well, this journey with some audio that we're going to play for you, we bring in our friend and colleague Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author, including most recently Make Your Own Sunshine. And Janice, great to have you here. Hey, happy belated birthday, my friend. Why, thank you, Janice. I appreciate that. I had sort of a bit of a birthday present on the weather side of things yesterday. It was like 80 in D.C. and very comfortable, and I spent some time outside, and I could see people around the neighborhood in shorts and flip-flops, and, okay, spring is upon us, but I feel like uh, maybe not so much, a bit of a false start. Right? It's, it's like they like, this happens in March, doesn't it, where a day or two will really tease you and you'll think it's yeah. spring and then winter comes back with a vengeance. Right. As soon as you start planting your gardens and stuff and then you get six inches of snow, <laughs> which is going to happen, actually, for some of these areas. And the weekend. So we have a storm system that's going to visit us you know, mainly for the northeast. I think you in D.C., you might get a little wintry mix and it's going to be cold. But then the weekend, uh, for parts of the interior northeast and the mountains across the mid-Atlantic, yeah, we could get 6 to 12 inches of snow. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that, Janice. I, Sorry. Look, I, I, I'm not going to shoot the good. messenger. Yeah, I'm not going to shoot okay. the messenger. You're just telling us uh, what, what the data seems to show uh, looking right. forward to the weekend. I want to get your reaction here to something that we briefly discussed on the show yesterday. We played one soundbite. We talked about it uh, with Molly Hemingway. But Andrew Cuomo, we know that he has spent some of his political war chests, he still has a lot of money, on ads in New York. Uh, so, you know, kind of came out there and is trying to rehabilitate his image with uh, some cable news ads in that state. Then he showed up at a church on Sunday in New York and had this whole diatribe. Uh, which was self-pitying, where he was sort of framing himself as the victim and everything. And he talked about cancel culture, and we played this yesterday, but here's how he tried to shoehorn his trials and tribulations into cancel culture or whatever. Cut 33. Yes, this is a time for impatience, but constructive impatience. If you want to cancel something, cancel federal gridlock. Cancel the incompetence, cancel the infighting, cancel crime, cancel homelessness, cancel education inequality, cancel poverty, cancel racism. Be outraged, but be outraged at what really matters, and what really matters is what matters to you. What that has to do with him, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's so pathetic and cringeworthy coming from him. Oh, cancel, a cancel gridlock? cancel racism. It's like, we, we don't need this from you, buddy. I don't know who's asking for this, but he clearly wants his old job back or wants his old relevance back. And this is, is 
I guess, first real entree into attempting that. He went on, Janice, and I know you've heard already this this whole sermon, if you will, at the church, but I want the audience to hear it. He said he is not at peace and said no one should be. Oh, cut 34. So I am blessed, my friends. I have many options in life, and I'm open to all of them. But on the question if I am at peace, no, I am not at peace. But by the way, I don't want to be at peace either. And by the byway, I don't think you should be at peace either. We have too much work to do to be at peace. We can be at peace when they put us in the box and they close the top. We can rest in peace. But right now we have to rise up, brothers and sisters. Right now we have to fight the good fight because the struggle continues. We have to stand up for progressive politics in a government that does what it says it would do and makes a real difference. And then in Cut 35, we got a little bit of an allusion to Dr. King because why not? Listen. We have to stand up against the radical right and their demagogues. We have to stand up and say, we don't judge by the color of skin in this nation. We judge by the content of character. We have to stand up and say, I am my brother's keeper. And I'm proud of it. And I believe in Matthew 25. And let's say the greatest success is the success that is shared. And the greatest feast is the feast with the most number of people at the table. Let's make some trouble. Let's make some good trouble. And let's make this state the greatest state in the nation. Thank you and God bless you. Not exactly deafening applause there. There was some music. I don't know. Were they playing him off like the Oscars? But he said, we don't judge by the skin color of individuals in this country. We judge by the content of character, which, at least in my view, is exactly what Andrew Cuomo's problem is. Because we saw his character and we judged him based on it. That's why he's disgraced and out of office. Last but not least, Janice, he also said this briefly in Cut 36. I've apologized many times, and I've learned a powerful lesson, and I paid a very high price for learning that lesson. God isn't finished with me yet. And I wonder if God was like, please leave me out of this, Andrew. Janice, quite a performance. I mean— I tweeted about this. The more we see this guy try to make a comeback, the more the world gets to see who he really is. And I think most people are seeing that, that he is a narcissistic bully who cannot stand not being in the spotlight. Uh, Our friend uh, Mary Catherine Hamm wrote a a really brilliant piece uh, that she put on the Daily Beast about him trying to make a comeback. And you know, it's um, nobody asked for that comeback. Uh, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing is, it, her piece was so good. I thought to myself, somebody in Hollywood actually might want to make this into a movie. But then I thought, you know what? You know who's going to want to star in that movie? Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, <laughs> as mean, himself. That, he is that crazed. I really think. And listen, I don't throw terms like psychopath around very often. But to see this guy like six months after he left, he resigned in disgrace. He wasn't canceled. He actually resigned because they were going to impeach him. Did he not forget that? Uh, and, and there was credible evidence with all of these women that came forward. Uh, but unfortunately, sexual harassment is not criminal. 
a lot of it you cannot charge as criminal behavior. It's a civil matter. Uh, so he is trying to gaslight us every step of the way, and I don't think it's working. Oh, well, it certainly didn't do much for Letitia James, who is the attorney general in New York, a Democrat. She saw this speech or heard about it and put out the following statement, quote, serial sexual harasser Andrew Cuomo won't even spare a house of worship from his lies, even though multiple independent investigations found his his victims to be credible. Cuomo wasn't railroaded. He quit so he wouldn't be impeached. New Yorkers are ready to move forward from this sick, pathetic man. End quote. That's the the Democratic AG in New York having none of it. And I was satisfied to see that. I was satisfied to see kind of the lukewarm response, apparently, from the pews. But what still frustrates me, Janice, and it must frustrate you so much more because of what happened to your family and your in-laws who died in New York nursing homes based on that disastrous policy that Cuomo implemented and then covered up and then lied about and miscounted the death so he could sell the story about how great he was and, and make a lot of money and get all the accolades and sell the book. Almost all of this, and, and he's very deliberately framing it this way as well, that, oh, I've done my penance, I've paid a great price, I've apologized so many times. He's talking only about the sexual harassment and impropriety issues. He and many others are diligently and deliberately ignoring the nursing home scandal for a reason, right? Yeah, I mean, the nursing home scandal is what brings so many tentacles out into the world. You know, the lobbyists, the people that are donating to Kathy Hochul today, millions of dollars, hospitals, nursing homes. He gave blanket immunity the day after he signed the executive order, uh, the the death sentence for thousands of seniors to put over 9,000 COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. And there are still investigations, by the way, that are that are happening, but people do tend to ignore those. Um, but, you know, he's in a house of worship that was basically a few streets down from where my in-laws lived in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, for a close to 60 years. I'd love that house of worship to welcome family members who lost their loved ones because of his reckless leadership. I mm. think that would be fair. Janice, I know you were tweeting about this yesterday. Like one day after he gives this speech, this political speech at the church, a lawyer who had worked for him is now alleging in court that he was fired in retaliation for cooperating with the probe into Cuomo, which sounds it's not proven yet. This is an allegation, but it's very much on brand for Cuomo and his character, as he referenced in that speech when he was calling back to Dr. King. Very quickly, 30 seconds, Janice, do you think he's, what, like running for governor here? What is he doing? Might that be helpful for him to run and get crushed and then maybe he'll go away? I don't know. That's a really good question. But we've already seen the type of guy this is, and nothing, nothing would surprise me at this point. Yeah, I I mean, I I can't disagree. And I know some people on social media, I see them every day, tell you, get over it, move on, enough. Your answer is N-O. That's the right answer as far as I'm concerned. And we love having you here to talk about any subject, this or more pleasant like the weather. Janice, always love it. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. 
Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. I want to share some happy or uplifting, at least, related news and sound bites involving Ukraine because there are so many sad and horrifying things happening over there. Two million refugees fleeing the country. Increased shelling and bombing and attacks by the Russians with U.S. intelligence suggesting the worst may be yet to come as Russia's getting desperate and they're feeling humiliated so they might really unleash something. And I don't have to tell you how bad it is. You can watch the videos for yourself. But it has been remarkable to see the solidarity around the world. People standing with Ukraine against Putin and against Russian aggression. I saw that our parent company, Fox Corporation, has donated a million dollars to the American Red Cross to help with relief efforts over there. And there's a lot of relief that's needed. So I'm really proud that they did that. And one of my favorite people and an American hero and treasure, a national treasure for sure, Dolly Parton was at the American Country Music Awards last night. And she is not a political person at all. She gets pressured to be more political. She always resists it. Nevertheless, she had something to say last night. And I want you to hear it. Cut 38. I do want us before we get started with all our fun to take a serious moment. Now, I don't want to be political, and this is not. I'd rather pass a kidney stone than do that. But I want us to send our love and hope to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Yeah. So why don't we just dedicate this entire show to them and pray for peace around this crazy old world? Lovely, well-stated, huge reception and a roar from the audience. The people of the United States of America stand with Ukraine, and it crosses ideological barriers. The numbers are staggering. We have unity here at home like we almost never see. I hope that brings them some solace when they get little dribs and drabs of this, maybe on social media, word of mouth. There was also something that happened here in D.C. that I thought was really beautiful and moving. There was a performance of three musicians. I believe it was a very famous cellist, Yo-Yo Ma, and a violinist and a pianist. And they were performing at the Kennedy Center, which is right on the Potomac River. It's a really nice venue. Packed house. And before the performance got started, these musicians performed in its entirety the Ukrainian national anthem. And the entire venue, the entire room, everyone stood in honor of the Ukrainian anthem. Here's the very end of the anthem and the reception from the audience in Washington. And you might recognize the tune at this point because there have been videos surfacing of children singing the anthem while they are in bomb shelters in Kiev and other cities around Ukraine as the Russians bomb. The Ukrainian parliament met a few days ago on a war footing 
not in slick suits and ties, but a lot of them wearing almost like military fatigues. And they opened the session in defiance, singing that anthem, an anthem with which I was not terribly familiar, but now we've heard it. And to see Yo-Yo Ma and his compadres play that song so beautifully in such an elegant and refined setting and to have the reception that it got in Washington, D.C., and watching the reception virtually that President Zelensky got from our cousins in London over in the U.K. today in the House of Commons, huge ovation for him. I know it's not a lot. I know a lot of it is just symbolic. They're going through hell over there. But morale matters a lot in moments like this. And I'm hoping that these gestures aren't seen as useless or empty or pure virtue signaling. I do think this is signaling virtue in this case, real virtue. But I hope it comes as encouragement to the people of Ukraine and the leadership of Ukraine and the military of Ukraine. I hope it warms their spirits and emboldens them and at least gives them the satisfaction and the peace that a lot of people around the world of many different stripes are with them. So I just want to share those things with you here in the happy hour. It is The Guy Benson Show. Much more to get to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's a happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Last night, as I mentioned here on the air, I joined Special Report, the panel with Brett Baer. One of our conversation topics was to analyze and react to Brett's interview, part one at least, with the former Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, Bill Barr, under President Trump. And I thought it was a really interesting back and forth. Part two airs tonight, right near the top of the hour on Special Report, 6 Eastern Fox News Channel. I'll be tuned in for that. Apparently, they'll get into more substance, certain issues, crime, immigration, etc., But last night, their exchange was mostly about politics. And as I said on the panel, this book, which is called One Damn Thing After Another, which I think is just a fantastic title. It's exactly right. He actually explains where the title comes from near the beginning of the book. But just it fits. It fits with him. I had a chance to meet with him when he was AG. Katie Pavlich and I were invited to his office for some off-the-record drinks, actually. He was drinking scotch, so I said, I'll have a scotch. And we were there for probably two hours. He's a very smart, serious, but also entertaining guy with a bit of a wicked sense of humor. But ultimately, he's an adult. He's an adult in the room in a town where there are fewer and fewer adults in the room. That's my view. So when I saw he was coming out with a political memoir, one damn thing after the other, it was one of the few books in that genre that I've actually been looking forward to reading, getting that advanced copy. I started on the plane the other day. It's been good, really illuminating. I'm still in the early days of his career, going chronologically in the book. But Brit Hume made the point on the panel that people who absolutely love Donald Trump now detest William Barr, even though they liked him for a long time, then he wouldn't say that there was voter fraud That could have changed the election. So they're mad at him for telling that truth. And the people who hate Donald Trump and are just generally leftists, they also loathe William Barr. 
because Bill Barr did some things, including accurately summarizing the Mueller report in a way that made them sad. They were totally unhinged about that. They're mad that he appointed John Durham to look at the origins of the Russia investigation. They're mad that Barr said accurately the Trump campaign was spied on. They've hated him for other reasons. So he's got a lot of incoming. And we mentioned this earlier with Josh Holmes as well. He kind of reminds me, I put him in the same category as a Mitch McConnell, someone who I think is not always perfect, but generally very serious and someone that I admire in a town often dominated by petty silliness and unseriousness. So Brett had a one-on-one sit-down. They taped it yesterday. They've split it up into two parts. I just want to once again forward promote. We have this date circled this coming Monday, the 14th of March. Bill Barr will be here in this studio sitting right in that chair that I'm gesturing toward. You can't see because it's radio. And he'll be here for three segments. We've got him for 40 or 45 minutes. I'll have finished and completed the book by that time. And we're going to have a very interesting, wide-ranging conversation. He's doing lots of interviews. He's been on the Today Show. He's been on with Brett. He's doing various sit-downs. I'm keeping tabs on what he's being asked, what he's talking about, what he's not. And I will try to bring some new information and have a unique conversation with Barr. And his takeaway from last night was he did his best to help President Trump succeed. He thought that Trump got a raw deal and was wrongly targeted by the Clinton campaign and by the Democrats, that the media treated him very unfairly, that Trump, for the most part, oversaw a successful presidency. Then he went off the deep end with the election lies that he couldn't bar, couldn't defend and wouldn't, earning the ire and the scathing attacks that he's now gotten from the former president who wrote this three-page screed attacking him, which I think is really short-sighted because I think Barr was actually, all things considered, a damn good attorney general. I'm glad he was in that chair, contending with one damn thing after another. His new book, he's here a week from Monday, one-on-one. On the Guy Benson Show, the home stretch coming up next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday from D.C. in the Tony Snow Radio Studios. Thank you for tuning in. The podcast is free, the whole show in its entirety, every day on demand, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, yesterday during this segment, I did something that I feel like is every little kid's dream. I drank soda and ate ice cream and no one could stop me. No ice cream today, no beverages, but I do want to pick up on something that we kind of touched on earlier in the 5 o'clock hour yesterday as we were celebrating my birthday just a little bit. Producer Christine and company were kind enough to assemble a whole series of clips of people wishing me happy birthday. Friends and relatives, my best friend's kids sang to me. It was adorable. And then at the very end of the montage came producer Christine Doing an impression, I will say, better than most of her impressions, it's a grading curve, but still, of a character from a TV show that she had binge-watched and was obsessed with. Adam had started watching it at our house, and he really liked it, so he encouraged me to get going. I started watching it, and then we finished the ninth and final episode just the other night. So Christine has been 
begging for us to do a home stretch discussion about Inventing Anna, which is on Netflix. And it is the dramatization of a real life story, although they apparently embellish stuff significantly as well. In every episode, they have a disclaimer that says, effectively, I'm paraphrasing, this story is completely true except for the parts that are made up. Like, okay. But at its core, this was a true story. A young woman in New York City swindling her way basically into the upper crust of society and coming very close to getting millions of dollars in loans to start this art-related social club, rubbing elbows with a bunch of famous people, very rich people, and she was a scammer. She was a grifter, but she was good at it and was very good at manipulating people and kind of almost got away with it and did for a long time. And there was a journalist from New York Magazine who sort of sniffed out this story and wrote about it and became a huge social media phenomenon. You may have heard about this woman, Anna Delvey. And I won't give too many spoilers, even though you can just Google what happened in the news. This is an actual series of events. There was a trial and everything. But they dramatized it. They had Delvey. They had her retinue of friends and hangers-on, her family about whom she lied a lot, her business associates to whom she lied a lot, and then the journalist trying to get to the bottom of all of it and writing a story about this girl with her permission because she wanted to be famous, which I guess mission successful, right? She's now at least something of a household name. There's a whole Netflix series about her. So I watched it. I will give you my overall review. Interesting story. Fascinating person in some ways. Not the most well-written television I've ever watched and not the most well-acted television I've ever watched. I'll just say that. But it entertained me. It kept my interest. I watched the nine episodes. They're all about an hour long. I'm not mad that I watched it. I'm not sure I'd go back and watch it again. I'm not telling you to race out and watch it immediately. But there's a lot of cultural buzz about the show. SNL lampooned it last weekend, did a pretty good job of it. There are some actors in the show that are marginally famous who are now going to become more famous. So Julia Garner plays the main character. She, I think, is from Ozark. I watched a little bit of Ozark. I gave up on it. I know sacrilege to fans of the show, and I love Jason Bateman, but I just couldn't do it. She's one of the main-ish characters in Ozark, Julia Garner. She plays Anna Delvey with her very strange accent. Then Anna Chlumsky is the journalist in this show. She was in Veep. She was a major side character in Veep, sort of a neurotic political aide in that show. She's the journalist here. Kind of plays a similar type of woman in this show, just a different job. Then Laverne Cox from Orange is the New Black. She has a role in this show as a trainer and a friend to... Uh, the fake socialite, although was she kind of a real socialite who was faking it in terms of her wealth? Anyway, that's a whole separate conversation. I thought it was fine. Somewhat entertaining. Glad I watched it, but like a six and a half out of ten is what I'd give it. So Christine, I think, is a much bigger fan of the show than I am. She also loves the character and the weird accent, and it's a very strange accent. 
It's like a German-Russian combo accent. It's, it's weird. Here's just a taste of some of the one-line zingers from this character, Anna Delvey, in this bizarre accent. Let's just play them. Cut 44 through 47. I have a question. What's you wearing? You look poor. I hear I'm famous. People are painting a public picture of me as a criminal. That's not my story. You have to work hard to get what you want. I've always known that. I'm building something as a private club. Accept me on the VIP room. I do not have time for this. I do not have time for you. Okay. So, Christine, this is, I guess, one of her heroes. She loves this character. She does her impression. She did it on the show yesterday, and a number of people were very confused by it, including my parents. They're like, what, what was that with Christine? What was she doing with that accent? So, Christine, you've heard my review of Inventing Anna, and I'm wondering where you would dissent. Ugh, that review was so bisick. Just terrible. I don't understand how you don't, how you didn't love this show. First of all, you must not be a Shonda Rhimes fan. Uh, would, would that be correct? Who? Shonda Rhimes, the, the person that wrote Inventing Anna, who created and produced it. She's also the creator of Grey's Anatomy. She has a specific way of writing. It might actually be geared more towards women, but um, I just... I didn't, I've never watched Grey's, and <gasps> oh, this... Boy. Okay. This presentation, I thought, was, eh, you know. I thought fine. the acting, I, I, what was wrong with the acting? I, I, I would say this would probably be a 10 out of 10 for me. I Ugh. loved also how, you know, they were like meaty length episodes. So, like, you didn't just get a half an hour, 40 minutes. Like, each one no, was like Quantity over an doesn't hour. necessarily translate to quality, right? Just because it was an hour doesn't mean it was good for an hour. But, but what I'm saying is quality and quantity. A plus. Plus plus. Look, it's a popular show. I'm not disputing it. I just, I thought it was maybe not quite worthy of all the hype, but interesting. So I came away from that not hating Anna, like the real Anna, and, and dare I say kind of liking her. Well, that doesn't surprise me because she's <laughs> originally Russian and then she lies about her past and comes to America to try to build a successful life and has this weird accent that, I don't know, I feel like that would all appeal to you given your your background and what we know about your Soviet roots. Now you're really going to confuse people. No, but you know what I liked and <laughs> I, I do like about her? Listen, yes. Um, well, I mean, she stands by. She did not. If you watched anything about the real Anna Delvey or any documentaries and any of inter- interviews, she stands by. She didn't do anything wrong. She would love to know. But her she crime. did. And spoiler alert, spoiler, spoiler alert. So you can tune out if you need to. She was convicted of multiple crimes because she did the crimes and it was proven in a court of law. She did many things wrong, legally wrong, ethically wrong, morally wrong. She's not a good person. She's a bad person and a criminal. And I didn't, like, absolutely loathe every single element of her. I think some of that was, like, you know, a tough facade and putting up a a weird defense system for her own emotions and all of that. But I think that she's a delusional, chronically and serially dishonest person who came close to swindling millions out of people and financially abused other people who could not afford it, close to her to keep up this whole charade. 
and keep it going just another day or two. How can you be sympathetic to this character? Honestly, like I thought that she was an extremely obnoxious, dishonest, unethical person. I thought that she was a very, very smart, savvy person who was basically, you know, came to New York to own New York. And that's what she accomplished for a few years. Just without any of the money or the actual owning. Right. That's the thing. She faked it. She faked it and she abused a lot of people and hurt a lot of people along the way. Oh, like her friend who she forced to give the credit card to? Like, that girl didn't have to put her credit card on the line. They could have figured something else out. Well, no, they couldn't have, though. Because she, yeah, well, she she stole 60 grand from that girl and got her into huge trouble. She did trouble. not steal that money. She did not steal. She did not yes. take well, money from that girl. She effectively did. She effectively did. And she stole money from a lot of other places, hotels and restaurants. I mean, she racked up massive bills on other people's dime and kept saying that she would pay it back from her rich oligarch father who didn't actually exist. And it screwed over a lot of other people who couldn't afford it. And it really impacted their lives. I just don't understand why that, like, I guess, you know, it's like, okay, for a swindler, for a grifter, for a faker, she has, I guess they said an eidetic memory, right, where she could just instantly memorize things. She was very manipulative and skilled at bending people to her will. But that doesn't make her really admirable given the massive ethical lapses and the crimes that she committed to achieve her dreams that were not exactly altruistic. They were very selfish. And she was unbelievably selfish the whole time. I just don't – I don't know how you come away – from this series being like, wow, I really kind of like that Anna Delvey. Although weirdly in the final episode, like her lawyer is weirdly obsessed with her and and almost like seemingly half in love with her. The journalist falls for her. Like I think she's an extremely manipulative person. And as someone who fell for the Andrew Cuomo Act, Christine, I'm not surprised that you'd be taken in. I'm surprised you're going to get Tinder swindled by Anna Delvey while she's in prison. You're going to be wire transferring your life savings. You're going to sell your house and immediately send that money to Anna Delvey. You are <laughs> you are the mark here. Well, you are not helping uh, my case of trying to book her for the show. So thank you to that. Oh, I would not like to have her on this show. Yes, you. If I told you I booked Anna Delvey, you're telling me you would say no, no thanks? I think so. Because mm. you— Because you'd be distracted from a previous booking challenge that you've set for yourself, which is Britney Spears. You book Britney, then we can talk about Delvey next. Start with Britney. I'll work on Britney first. Okay. Do you want to do this impression one more time and then we can put it to bed and not do it ever again on the show? I don't know why you have to be so rude. It's just you have a basic, basic review of me. You don't know anything about me. I am trying to start something here. I am starting a foundation. I don't have time for you. Tell me about my baby feelings, Anna. You and your little baby feelings. You look fat. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Your clothes. You look puh. It's not bad. It's actually not that bad. All things considered, it's not that bad. Play the real one. Cut 47 again. I do not have time for this. I do not And I do not have time to keep talking because we are out of time 
and we're done for the day. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place. It's the Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.